Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of La Citadel, Leonard Bethel. Leonard Bethel, author of La Citadel, Lale Lane and Social Activism in the 20th Century. Um, why'd you write the book? Because I knew Leo Lane. I was a counselor at a camp as a teenager from age 14 and 15 uh, in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. I was introduced to her by my mother, who uh, was an educator. And she, my mother just passed away this past August at age 96. And my mother was an English teacher and an English professor. Um, she introduced my brother and I to Leo Lane because uh, Leo Lane had a great influence on her. Uh, my mother was a counselor at her camp uh, in Doylestown, Pennsylvania during the thir 1930s. And uh, it was co-ed then, but um, Leo Lane uh, decided to turn it to all boys. And uh, when I, my brother and I uh, went there in the 50s as counselors, it was all male boys, inner city boys. Uh, uh, African-American from North Philadelphia, South Philadelphia, and Harlem. And, um, and so I, uh, I knew her from that period on. Well, what was the story behind the camp? Why was it there? Well, um, Leah Lane was a social activist. Um, she, um, she wanted to um, have a place for young African-American children. Uh, she bought the land from her brother in 1927. Uh, her brother, um, um, Harry Lane, uh, married an Armenian woman, was Caucasian. He passed for white. Uh, back in 1927, um, in that area of uh, Doylestown, Bucks County, land could not be sold to blacks. There was a lot of prejudice going on, you know, in that area. They didn't like Italians. They didn't like Irish. Um, and uh, Harry Lane's wife did not want to live in the country. She grew up on the farm. She wanted to live in the city. So he sold his land, his 36 acres that he bought back in 1927. And uh, the farmer did not know he was black, you know, thought he was white. Um, to his sister for $3,600. And, um, and she um, got involved in uh, politics early. She was a socialist Democrat. Um, she didn't care much for the Republican or the Democratic parties because he, she felt that they did not, uh, you know, help blacks in the inner city. And um, she started this camp for boys and girls from the inner city back in, oh, as early as 1928. Um, she couldn't handle the farm by herself. In 1930, 
uh, an Italian, a Sicilian named Pellegrino, always known as Mr. Pellegrino, uh, was an astute farmer. He came from uh, Italy and looking for work in Bucks County in the Doylestown area. None of the farmers would hire him because he spoke broken English. Uh, he was Italian. And uh, he met Lil Lane. He went door. He went from farm to farm, and he 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 knocked on the door at uh, Ferry Road, and it was either Ch Cheese Factory Road or Beacon Hill Road that crossed there. Are those roads there now? Yeah. Uh, well, let me let me tell you. Bring you up to date on that. Lil Lane answered the door, and she lived in a house that was about at least three centuries old. Um, and uh, they worked out a deal. She said. Of course you can come and, and farm here and live here and uh, I have uh, children coming from the inner city and uh, you can be helpful in growing vegetables and, and I want them to eat fresh fruit and, and vegetables and he, uh, she gave him a corner of the barn area and he renovated it and lived there up until he passed away. And um, so uh, in the, um, my mother was a counselor there, and she went on, of course, to, to college and, and uh, graduate school and so on, and she taught in Philadelphia. Lil Lane, um, that was her permanent home um, in Doylestown, but she got involved in New York politics on the Socialist Democratic ticket. Um, and she... Uh, was one of the first residents of the Dunbar Apartments in, uh, in Harlem, East Harlem. And, um, and she uh, became a, a close friend with A. Philip Randolph, who uh, was, uh, you know, ran the Brotherhood for Sleeping Car Porters. And um, in the summer, she would go out to the camp with the kids, but during this regular year, she, uh, she graduated from Howard University. Uh, went on to Hunter College, earned another bachelor's degree, and then to Columbia University and earned a graduate degree. And she taught in the, in the New York uh, public school system and was involved in politics. Um, in 19, uh, well, as you know, in the late 1930s, the Depression years came in, and uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was in the presidency. And... Um, Lil um, tried to, um, you know, uh, she got involved in, in national politics and she uh, followed A. Philip Randolph. They formed what was called the March on Washington Movement and uh, they uh, were going to protest uh, for, uh, for jobs for blacks. In the this was not the Martin Luther King March on No, Washington. no, this, this was the first march on Washington was 1941. It did not take place because uh, the March on Washington movement group um, made their point um, out of their effort. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, established an executive order and, formed and got the Congress and the Supreme Court backing to form the Fair Employment Practice Act and Commission. Uh, but uh, blacks from all over the country were getting ready to march on Washington because uh, uh, blacks were drafted in the military. The Second World War had started, and uh, blacks were not getting jobs. And uh, Lil Lang was very much concerned about that, and uh, she uh, was very close to A. Philip Randolph on this, um, this vision and getting jobs for blacks. And so that was the first march on Washington. Uh, ironically, 
the, uh, the same group, the March on Washington uh, movement, uh, met with uh, Harry Truman when he was president in 1948 and got him to uh, establish an executive order to desegregate the military troops. And uh, that same group, A. Philip Randolph, Leo Lane, um, Bart Rustin came into the picture, uh, helped to organize the Martin Luther King March in 1963. So Leo Lane uh, was an important figure. And um, at age 14, I did not know that. I mean, I, you know, she was um, a very uh, calm person, a pacifist. Um, but very strong in her conviction and uh, has some very strong rules and principles. And I was one of her boys, you know, out there at the camp. <laughs> so you went to the farm when you were that? Uh, yes. Well, we lived out there during the, for about eight weeks and with the uh, boys between 8 and 12, 13 uh, from South Philadelphia, uh, North Philadelphia and Harlem. And Leo Lane took her pension uh, well, she took her own funds um, to um, give them scholarships to stay there. What, what kind of activities did you do while you were there? Um, well, a normal day would be getting up at 7, having breakfast that she fixed. You know, she, uh, she did not believe in uh, store-bought food. She had Mr. Pellegrino grow all kinds of vegetables, and, and she was able to get uh, eggs from... Mr. Caradosi, an Italian farmer who married a Quaker woman, lived not more than two miles away. And um, after that, uh, we had chores. And um, the chore that I remember that took a lot out of me was uh, really building that road. It was like a dirt road called Beacon Hill and, Ch and Cheese Factory Road. I, didn't, I never liked the name of that street that came off a of ferry road. She lived at the corner. Ferry Road and Beacon Hill or, or Cheese Factory Road. And um, we had to lay stones, the boys, and, and it was my brother and I and all the boys, and we would lay stones every day. That was our chore. It took a lot out of us. Then we had lunch, and then after the afternoon, um, blacks could not just openly, there were no segregated laws, but they could not go downtown and swim in the Y. What, what years was this? This was the 1954-55s, in the, in the mid-1950s. Um, so she had a, uh, there was a, a little stream that ran through the back of the property, and she had a water hole built. And we swam there and had a deck built, and we swam there in the afternoon. Uh, we played games. Um, she would have discussion groups every day to talk about um, you know, um, what boys should be doing. She changed the camp from co-ed to all boys because she, she had a vision about um, African-American boys, then it was called Negro, uh, becoming good fathers and community people and so on. And she thought that there might be a problem there. And uh, she gave a full concentration to the idea of molding these boys to become good citizens and good husbands and fathers. And um, she spent a lot of time in discussion uh, with her. Now, she has some interesting people come to the farm. Uh, Pearl Buck, the Nobel Prize laureate who lived in, uh, in that area, um, 
she and uh, Pearl Buck and Leo Lane were very close friends because Leo Lane was an avid writer. She would uh, write an average of 15 letters a morning. She would get up about 4.35 and write before she started her duties. And um, because she was a socialist, a socialist democrat, she did not believe in writing for profit, so she would not publish. <laughs> she, I have a number of her letters in my possession now. And, uh, but Pearl Buck was an avid writer, and they had that in common. And uh, Pearl Buck liked the idea of having, you know, seeing inner city boys coming and seeing a new way of life and so on in the country. And um, also, W.B. Du Bois used to visit. I met him. And um, at age 14, I did not know the importance of his activity. <laughs> so I just shook his hand and went on. And I think Leo Lane was a little annoyed at that. I didn't get a pen or a pencil, a pencil on a pad and write. You know, back then we didn't have tape recorders. And um, Ralph Bunch, I uh, met him uh, at the farm. He would come and visit. For people who don't know, can you explain who some of these people were? Well, you know, W.B. Du Bois was uh, one of the leading um, social activists during the 20th century. He uh, was the first black to earn a Ph.D. from Harvard in, uh, in 1890. Uh, he was an avid writer and scholar. Um, he um, laid out some strong principles of how blacks should survive in, uh, in America. He made clear the, the whole concept of double consciousness. You know, you, uh, you, 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 you're black and you, or you're Negro and you live a way of life, but you're also a citizen and you live another way of life. And there was a constant contradiction in being, you know, of color in this country. And he developed that concept. Um, he wrote a very interesting book on the Philadelphia Negro. Um, highly respected scholar, was a professor, um, and um, made a great contribution to American life as a scholar. Ralph Bunch. Um, he was uh, Ralph Bunch was involved in the um, on the international scene. He was with the United Nations. Um, I believe he um, won an, uh, numerous awards. Um, he was one of the first blacks, uh, you know, appointed by the federal government to, uh, you know, have an outreach on the na international scene. And, uh, but behind the scenes, he was very concerned about uh, social development of the Negro. And uh, he, you know, got involved with Leo Lane on, on that uh, issue. And, and he, came, he visited the farm uh, a few times. I met him. And Pearl but Buck? Pearl Buck was a Nobel Prize laureate, as you know, and she uh, wrote a number of works. And she lived, uh, there's a Pearl Buck's Museum, a house uh, out in uh, uh, Bucks County now. Uh, she was a celebrated uh, writer. And um, uh, one of America's uh, top writers, a Nobel Prize in, in literature. And um, I didn't know it at the time. I saw this lady come and you know, you know, talk to us and walk around. I didn't know who she was as a teenager, but found out later how important she really was. Now, Leo Lane um, uh, 
kept their distance from James Mishner. He was out there, uh, you know, during the, the around the Second World War period and so on. Uh, at first, he was sort of involved with the conservatives, but when he married a Japanese woman, he found out, you know, what prejudice was. <laughs> he became an avid Democrat, <laughs> and um, and I think that uh, you know when he changed his view, uh, social view, uh, he and Leo Lane. You know, had he never came out to the farm, but I think they became uh, uh, intimate friends uh, in a in a very limited way. You know, he didn't have much contact with it, but he was out in that in the Bucks County area also. Um, the importance they uh, Lil Lane named the farm La Citadel um, after the fortress in Haiti in honor of Toussaint Louverture, and uh, because of uh, um, she was fascinated with the idea that slaves and ex-slaves could uh, beat Napoleon Bonaparte in battle in the French army. You know, they, and there was a way that he did, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte beat all the armies in Europe, but he went to Haiti and he lost a battle to slaves, <laughs> you know. And it's because this fortress was built on a hill and the only way you could get to it is a, a path. And of course, the slaves would just pick off his, the French soldiers as they came up the path. Um, but the, the La Citadel meant highest ideals, highest principles, highest morals, a sense of victory and vision of hope. And so she took that name and called the camp La Citadel Camp. And uh, it was La Citadel Camp, well, you know, when I was uh, there as a counselor. And um, she, she used the idea of La Citadel to build up the vision and hope for the boys, that they might uh, have self-esteem and pride. And uh, uh, I live now at La Citadel Manor. I live on the property. Um, when Mr. Pellegrino passed away, it was around 1957, 58. Um, she could not really uh, manage the farm, so um, she uh, made connection with uh, um, Judge Harriet Mims, one of the first women judges in the Dollstown area, who was a feminist. And she and Lel Lane became very close friends. Lel Lane never married. Um, she spent much of her adult years uh, outside of being involved in politics, taking care of her father. Um, Reverend Calvin Lane, who was a Unitarian minister, went to Hartford uh, Theological School, um, and um, she she just didn't. She was so active in the camp and in politics and in teaching. She just didn't find anybody she wanted to marry. And uh, Mims was uh, was single, and uh, but Harriet Mims uh, helped Lil Lane divide the land up into. Uh, housing uh, units. Now, uh, Leo Lane's first inclination, because she had socialist ideas, her first inclination uh, was to build uh, an apartment complex, which uh, was in contrary to the uh, the land rules of the area. You know, you could not build uh, apartment houses; they were only farm and single home units. Then um, she uh, they worked out at 
two to three acre division of the, of the property. Leo Lane wanted uh, solid African-American families. Interestingly, interestingly enough, uh, uh, La del Manor now is almost 50-50 white black. <laughs> because How did the neighbors take that, that there was suddenly a, a planned community for African-Americans? Well, uh, Leo Lane picked her families. I know uh, my family was one of the ones because my mother, uh, you know, she knew my mother very well. I mean, as a, my mother was a teenager, and then years later, my mother ended up uh, taking care of her uh, in her uh, late 70s for a year. Um, and so that was an easy sale. And my mother recommended a few families from Philadelphia, a school teacher and her husband. So this uh, is the late 50s, early 60s? This is uh, late 50s. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Leo Lane, along with uh, uh, Harriet Mims, uh, mapped out a blueprint on uh, the, uh, what the houses should, uh, you know, the, they could be individual and they're, uh, you know, using individual contractors and so on, but they had to be of a certain standard and, 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 and uh, they had to meet certain um, rules uh, for, you know, the planned community. And uh, Leo Lane met with every, every family that decided to buy there. Um, she did not personally know all of them, but she, she met with them and she was the one who decided whether the, that was the family to own the property or not. <laughs> and so uh, by 1960, uh, um, most of the people who met with her started to build. and. Uh, two to three acres. I have one of the two acres. Uh, my mother never lived there year-round. She was an educator here in Philadelphia. She would go out in the summer and so on. But uh, she knew how I loved uh, the property and my brother didn't care for country. You know, he, he was a Philadelphia city boy. And he, he taught here in the city and he uh, uh, he was involved in the military, 30 years in the Army, and he's buried in Arlington Cemetery. Uh, he was one of the, um, uh, he was with the Old Guard, one of the Honor Guard chosen to carry President Kennedy's casket. So he's buried there. And, um, but I loved, you know, the idea of the country, and she turned the property over to me in 1980, and I paid taxes on it and so on. And uh, my wife and I decided that when I, you know, I, I met my wife in college. Um, I was in seminary and she was uh, in the undergraduate school of Veronica Bethel at Johnson C. Smith University. And uh, we decided that when we retired, we would move out there and renovate. And uh, that's what we did. I retired from Rutgers University in uh, 2011. What did you teach? Um, I helped to, I taught religion and philosophy. You know, I'm an ordained Presbyterian. Um, and I earned my doctorate at Rutgers, and I have two theology uh, masters, masters of divinity, masters of arts. And uh, I was one of the few people uh, trained to counsel African American students. Uh, I first went back to Lincoln University as assistant chaplain, uh, director of the student center, and uh, a program was started called the Institute for Services to Education. Uh, for special black students coming into the university setting. And I was sent to Atlanta University and Tufts University for training. 
And uh, when Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968, a uh, number of predominantly white schools opened up. Rutgers was one. And uh, they opened up an urban university program, a transitional university program for black students who would not ordinarily get into Rutgers. And uh, I, I was hired in 1969 as uh, director of counseling. And immediately, um, just talking to people, um, um, some of the faculty and administrators, I knew this wouldn't last. <laughs> and, uh, and so I said, let's take an opportunity and um, make something out of it. Uh, a person was hired to start an African Afro-American studies uh, program. And I, I was hired in that program. This is during the time that I was counseling. And uh, we formed uh, the, the program African and African American Studies at Rutgers College, at uh, the newly established Livingston College of Rutgers University, uh, and Douglas College, the Women's College. And uh, as history plays out, I ended up 42 years in the department of what eventually became the Department of Africana. I taught religion and philosophy, helped to organize a number of the courses of the introduction to Africana. And so uh, that was uh, my stay there. And uh, because of my effort, I, when I retired in 2011, uh, the president of the Board of Governors gave me Professor Emeritus. And, um, and so um, time just passed. And, and I owe a lot of uh, my development, not only from my mother as an educator and the sternness of my father, but from Lael Lane and her vision, her educational vision of progress and development. She strongly believed in education. And, um, and so I decided uh, when I retired that I was going to go back to, you know, the farm. My, my, I, I don't know, uh, my wife had uh, a good life in this city. We lived in Plainfield, New Jersey, uh, just 15 miles from Rutgers, and she was a professor at the Raritan Valley Community College, an early childhood specialist. But we decided to move out to the country and renovated the house, and that's where we are now. And I'm writing and, you know. Well, I, I should, uh, after 40 plus years at Rutgers, uh, our, our bureau chief, Corey Clark, pointed out that you came here wearing a Lincoln University tie. Oh, yes, my school colors. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I'm very proud of my, my school. Um, it's going through challenges, but, um, you know, Lincoln, I mentioned this to you once before, was the first liberal arts college started for African Americans. Of course, Cheney University claims to be the oldest. It started in eight, 1838, but it is a normal school, but Lincoln was the first. And, and uh, when I was a student, there was all male. And you were on this program before for your book, Educating African Leaders, which was yes, about Lincoln University. Right. And um, I just thought that, you know, someone as important as Lil Lane and what she was achieved. Now, what I was able to do, uh, in 19, she passed away in 1976. I had an opportunity, my wife and I, my two children, went to, Cuernavar went to Mexico City, where she uh, first uh, taught, she decided to move to Mexico. 
um, you know, at, at first I raised questions. I said, why didn't she go to an African city? You know, but um, she had never seen children eating out of garbage cans in the way that she saw children eating out of garbage cans in Mexico City. Um, she traveled to Africa, but she didn't, there was poverty there, but she did not see that image. And she decided, she had a philosophy that uh, if you learn to speak the proper language of the society where you live, it is the first step toward succeeding in that society. And uh, she taught this message to the African-American boys at La Citadel. And she decided to, to teach the proper Spanish uh, to the Mexican children. Uh, so it would, be, would have been the first step out of poverty. And uh, she went on to the University of Mexico and earned a master's in Spanish. It's fairly late in life. Yeah, yeah right. She, she was up in age. Um, and, um, uh, but still she had this vision. And uh, she taught the proper Spanish to these begging children, used her pension money to pay for the classes that they took uh, under her teaching at the Casa del Maestro, the House of Teachers in Mexico City. Uh, Leah was a strong fo follower of Father Ivan Illich, the socialist priest who had his uh, church in, uh, located in Cuernavaca, Mexico. And she decided to uh, move there uh, to continue her work and follow him. Um, I tried to get um, information from Ivan Illich. Now, he wrote the best book on how to educate poor children. It's called The De-Schooling Society. Uh, the Mexican government was deathly afraid of him. He was an old man. They were afraid of his ideas and his words. And uh, when he held service on Sunday, uh, military troops would stand in the back of the <laughs> service. For what? But at any rate, I wrote him a number of times and the government confiscated my letters. And they were afraid of him. He was a socialist. Uh, so Leo Lane, uh, moved to Cuernavaca, Mexico. That's where she passed away in 1976. And uh, my wife and nine children went uh, to, to her gravesite. And uh, she was sort of a, a, a hero, a local hero. The poor women would keep fresh flowers on her grave uh, in, there in, the, in Cuernavaca. And um, I was so impressed by her whole life and what she did in 1977, I started a personal campaign to change that road, Cheese Factory and Beacon Hill to Leo Lane. And I went before the Bureau of Council and I argued my case and I won by one vote. And they changed uh, the street to Leo Lane. So it's not Leo Lane Street or Leo no, Lane? No, just Leo Lane. Lane. And uh, I live at 30 Leo Lane. <laughs> was, was there ever a cheese factory there? Yes. Uh, and, and part of the road, it goes around, it's still cheese factory, but off of the Leo Lane property. <laughs> um, there was a cheese factory there. And uh, I think it, when it turned, it, 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 part of the road was called Beacon Hill and Cheese Factory. I just didn't like the names. <laughs> and I said, we built this road right up through the property to the abandoned cheese factory, the other part of cheese factory, the boys and I laid stone. We built that road, and I made that point very clear to the borough council. We built that road. Oh, that was the road you built when you were 14. Yeah, and I said, wait, I want this. And, and uh, uh, their first decision was, well, we heard about her civil rights activity. 
Um, and we'll build a statue there. And I said, no, I don't want a statue. I don't want something for birds to land on. I want a street named after. And so we won by one vote. And uh, when uh, we had a ceremony you know, proclaiming the street, uh, Philadelphia uh, Inquirer reporter was there. The Intelligencer, which is the newspaper in the Bucks County area, had a reporter there. And uh, you can see in the, in the in pictures picture in the book. book. Yeah. And um, uh, they both told me it was the first street named after an African-American woman in Bucks County and possibly Pennsylvania in 1977, from 77 to 79, somewhere in that period. And so um, I was determined to move back to Lail Lane. And that's where I live now in my retirement. You said she was a socialist. What did it mean to be a socialist in the 20s and 30s? Because you say she was, she was anti-communist and anti-capitalist. Right. Um, there, um, there are two sides to socialism. And uh, uh, one is a kind of nationalistic thrust where uh, there is pride within the nation. And the other uh, is that nationalism is when a, a foreign country uh, takes over a smaller country and, and forces their ideas on them, that form of nationalism. Well, the form of socialism uh, that Leo Lane was, she was involved in what was called the de Leninist movement of the socialist, socialism, which were educators uh, who believed that um, you know, the people need to get educated and rule themselves. Well, the socialism that Leo Lane followed uh, was one uh, that um, uh, centered around the idea that uh, we can do for ourselves. Uh, we, uh, people should be able to rule themselves. Um, it was a little bit different than uh, you know, the image of communism where the state ruled. I mean, the, there was a kind of sense of people ruling under communism. She didn't like the communist idea of the state dictating to people what they should do. She believed that people should form their own sense of government and rule themselves. And um, also, uh, she was, uh, as Norman Thomas, who ran for the socialist presidency six times and lost, uh, believed that, you know, he was anti, uh, one of the things that didn't get over with him and, and his politics was he was anti-war, anti-military. And Leo Lane was also, she hated guns and um, a lot of things she did not like. Um, I, I mentioned something in the book about, you know, her as a socialist, she kind of rejected Christ, a Christian God, but she believed in God and she believed in Jesus. And her father was a Unitarian minister, but she did not believe in the structure of Christianity because it supported what she felt as capitalistic ventures. And um, she believed in the kind of um, um, theology that I think John S. Mbiti, the African theologian, when he talked about our traditional African religions, a kind of anthropocentric idea of a man at the center of his universe, and Jesus was that, that uh, any moral incentive was centered in the person. And she believed in that kind of Jesus and that kind of God. And um, 
And she had some influence on W.B. Du Bois with this idea. The, du Bois had joined the Communist Party, and he broke away. Byron Rustin, uh, as a graduate student, uh, joined the Young Communist League and broke away. In fact, he told me in an interview, I interviewed him, that it was Leo Lane who talked him away from the Communist Party. Uh, because uh, she believed uh, that um, a moral person, and as Jesus was, uh, had concern for the poor and the downtrodden. And, um, and this is, took her away from capitalism. Yeah, and uh, this, was, this was the uh, kind of socialism that she lived. Um, she didn't believe in profit-making. When she passed away, she had no money. And she had just that property in Doylestown. Um, and so th it was the kind of socialism that she, she lived. In fact, she had some odds with Paul Robeson. We, uh, Paul Robeson is one of my heroes, you know, coming from Rutgers and so on. Um, uh, Robeson uh, never joined the Communist Party, but uh, he was honored by the, um, the Bolsheviks, you know. He, they, I mean, has, they, I don't know whether it's there today, but there was a little statue built of him in Moscow and so on. Uh, but he never, uh, he, he, he believed in the poor rising up, and he never joined the Communist Party. But he and Leo Lane were at odds on certain ideologies between the, you know, communism and socialism. In fact, they both were uh, residents at the Dunbar Apartments. <laughs> Can you explain about the Dunbar Apartments work? You, well, you, it was one of the early concepts, you know, during the 1930s, uh, one of the first of its type, uh, to um, house um, social leaders who dealt with the race question. I mean, um, A. Philip Randolph was a resident there. Yeah, I want to uh, read some. You're right. Okay. Paul Robeson, A. Philip Randolph, Lael Lane, Bill Bojangles Robinson, yes. uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, mm -hmm. Matthew Henson, the first man to reach the North Pole as part of Admiral Perry's team, yes. lived there. They were all residents there. Yes. It was in Harlem? In Harlem, yeah, right on the East Harlem. And, and you say uh, that she was kind of a celebrity there. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, uh, you had to have r written references to get in. To the Dunbar Apartments. It was the first concept of condominianism. And um, there was a lot of discussion, interaction, uh, you know, among the people who lived there about social progress and, and that kind of thing. Uh, Lael, even though she lived there, her permanent resident was always Doylestown and the farm. But uh, her activity was in Harlem, in New York. She ran for politics there and so on. So the Dunbar residency was temporary. It wasn't her permanent home. She ran for office a couple of times yes. in New York State? Yes, as a, a socialist, socialist Democratic ticket, yes. They lost. You know, the socialists just could not, they could not. Uh. Leo Lane had an interesting idea, and I heard her talk about this. Um, her challenge with America was that we, we do not live in a pure democracy. That was, she, she, she was really concerned about that. Uh, her, her idea was that if we lived in a pure democracy, any political ideology could be included and people could choose which ideology they wanted. Um, she saw an America where the Republicans and Democrats were the only two ideologies that could exist.
and uh, any, anyone else was out of the picture. And, uh, and that bothered her as a socialist democrat and a pacifist, that she could not be clearly involved in the political system in America because, and she made it very clear, there's no pure democracy here, but there's no pure democracy anywhere in the world. Not in, not in Africa, not in South America, not in Europe. And she was concerned about that. And she said that maybe one day there will be a nation that would open up and let any political party uh, be involved in their, in, in their structure uh, without uh, limitation to one or two uh, ideologies. And so that, that, that was the problem that she, uh, she, she was very loyal to America, but she, she had a strong feeling about this that America will never become great until it becomes a pure democracy. And uh, the, what we call democracy now is not a true democracy, and she felt that strongly. It's a democracy built on, we are a representative democracy and not a pure democracy, based on republicanism and, de and democratic structure. She was born in Georgia? Uh, Marietta, Georgia. 1893. Yes. What was it like for a black family in Georgia in 1893? It was especially hard for her family. And uh, I wish I had, um, the picture of her family sort of got lost. I would have had it in the, in the book. But uh, she came from a mulatto mother and father. They look white, but they were very much black. Uh, Calvin uh, Lane, as I said, you know, was a Unitarian minister. And... Um, uh, she had, and they were freedmen, and so she had problems with blacks in general, but uh, problems with whites also. And um, <clears throat> uh, she was born during the period of overt segregation, was right at the end of the Reconstruction period, and um, uh, life wasn't easy. Her father would not allow her to go to any se segregated school. He started a school for girls, and she was, uh, you know, his first, one of his first students. He taught his own children. And, um, uh, and um, when the turn of the century came and got into the early 1900s, uh, the family, the Lane family, moved to Vineland, New Jersey. Well, I want to ask about her, her uncle, her father's brother. He was a professor? Yes. Was that in the South? Um, he, um, uh, you can see, he was one of the first, uh, Whitmill, uh, he mm -hmm. was one of the first blacks to earn a degree from Amherst. Mm. And uh, so he got a chance to move around. Now you have to, it's interesting that W.E.B. Du, e. du Bois had the same kind of, these were blacks who were very fair. In fact, when I met W.B. Du Bois and I shook his hand, I thought he was Jewish. I went up to this man, I said, w. he looked like a little Jewish man, but until he was so, because he was keen featured, green eyes, straight hair. Uh, Whitmill Lane was like that also. And they had a hard time because they had to tell people, no, I'm Negro, you know, but uh, received opportunities maybe that a darker skinned black would not receive, teaching and moving around and so on. You also say the Reverend Calvin Lane, Lale's father, was not appreciated by his Methodist and Baptist colleagues. His New England speech pattern encouraged 
in his Hartford seminary education typified a highly educated gentleman did make a did not make a strong dent in the small Georgia community. So he had a New yeah. England accent. Yeah, yes, being right. a preacher in well, Georgia. Well, uh, Lane, um, who became an English teacher, uh, got this idea from uh, from her father that um, in order to succeed in this country, you had to speak the proper English, not any broken English or. Uh, you know, any kind of regional dialect or, uh, uh, sl uh, or tongue or slang, but the proper standard English. And it will be the first step toward succeeding in this country. But, you know, that idea, uh, Leo Lane took to other languages. You know, the, the, in, a, in the country where you live, learn the standard language of that country. And she taught this to the boys. She taught it to us. And uh, my mother, up until her death, at age 96, she would correct me. She said, that's a split infinitive. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so, um, yeah, uh, Reverend Lane had a hard time. You know, he had a hard time with the white community because of segregation, but he had a hard time in two different ways. Was, one, he was fair-skinned. And, you know, there, there was a general feeling that if you look white, you know, you're going to be accepted more and, and uh, you're not one of us and that kind of thing. It was difficult. The family had a challenge. But she went to uh, Howard University. She went to the, Howard. And, and her, her father teams. was a Howard graduate also. Yeah, Reverend Calvin Lane, before he went to Hartford, he graduated from Howard. Were there many women at Howard at the time? Um... Not many, because, you know, the black, black colleges, with the exception of Spelman, which was a woman's college, uh, sort of reached out to, for the freedmen, the male. And there were more men than women. They eventually, of course, now you look at them, many of the historically black colleges are predominantly female. <laughs> Myling University is, you know, 70% women and was an all-male college. And that is because, you know, the general failure of the black male, and we're at a tragic point. And Leo Lane saw this when she started the camp for boys in the 50s, that the black male is, is going to have a hard time. And we're seeing it right now. I mean, she was a visionary. Um, there are more black males in prison than in college today. And 70% um, uh, of African-American women with children uh, don't have husbands. You know, Leah Lane saw this early on, even though she never married herself, but she saw this, and she wanted to concentrate on black boys to give them a different vision of life and what they could do to contribute to their own existence, to get educated, to become good husbands and fathers. And um, the camp you know, when it folded up, uh, that idea sort of went with it. But we're, we're at a tragic point at this point. We, we have a problem. And the very thing that she was concerned about uh, has come uh, to be a reality. Are there things being done to successfully address that right now? I don't see. There, there are a few instances. I, I think um, in Detroit or Chicago, there was there is an uh, emphasis on uh, all male school for boys 
they change their view of life so that they can go on to college. You know, there are a few places where this is happening. I don't see anything around uh, Pennsylvania like that. I, I don't. Um, I wrote a paper uh, for the uh, uh, Lincoln University Journal, Lincoln, um, the Journal for Social and Political Thought, is saying that uh, one of the ways educationally that we can deal with this problem is to form all male black schools with black male teachers, not women, but men, and with moral conviction in their training and, um, you know, and teach not only math and science, um, but teach m moral conviction, you know, what, it, what does it mean to live in a society and become a, 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 a stable citizen? What does it mean to be a husband and a father? Um, the only predominantly black male college is Morehouse College now. Lincoln is co-ed, as, as you know. Um, but I'm for the idea of an all-black male college. Leia Lane went to Columbia University? She earned a graduate, um, a, a graduate degree, a master's degree in English from and, Columbia. And that, again, would have been the late 19-teens or early 1920s? Uh, that would be in the 1920s. So a, a, in the an African-American woman going to graduate school at Columbia University. unheard of. But here again, um, you see the picture of Leia Lane. That, that's a darkened picture of her. <laughs> but. Um, like W.B. Du Bois, you know, uh, blacks who were somewhat fair-skinned could go places and not be really noticed as a black person. I'm quite sure that the, the, uh, uh, the admissions office at Harvard in 1890 did not know that W.B. Du Bois was a Negro. He didn't look like a Negro. And maybe if he was dark-skinned, he might not have gotten in. Um, Another thing that was very disturbing to Lael, it's not only, she went to Hunter after Howard. Uh, this was true in New York City, it was true in Philadelphia. Um, blacks finishing historically black colleges could not get in, teaching jobs. You say she applied to teach at public schools but was turned down, this is in New York City, yes. by a very conservative viewpoint on her college experience, the New York City right. school officials. They didn't think Howard could train a, a, a teacher mm -hmm. to teach in their school system. And this was true in Philadelphia. And so and that's why she went to Hunter and earned another bachelor's degree. Well, she did eventually get a teaching job in New York City? Yes, well, after she got her degree from Hunter and after she got a graduate degree from Columbia University. It's a sad thing. It's a very sad attitude. And interestingly enough, the first black to serve on the Supreme Court, who is a celebrated uh, uh, Supreme Court member, Thur member, Thurgood Marshall, finished Lincoln University, the class of 1930, and Howard Law School, which is, you know, historically black law school. Uh, he, he, um, I talked to, uh, when he was alive, uh, Judge Leon Higginbotham, who finished Yale. He was a top student academically from Yale. He said, you know, I could never figure out this man, Thurgood Marshall. I lost to him in, in the courtroom. 
And I thought, you know, with a Yale degree, I was better than he finished Howard. And, uh, and uh, he said, I was second in line for the Supreme Court job that President Lyndon Johnson chose him for. And he chose him because he had zero losses in the courtroom. <laughs> and uh, was Thurgood Marshall, who spearheaded the Brown decision in 1954. Brown versus the Board of Education. Brown versus the Board of Education. Um, and so this attitude that blacks finishing these schools uh, were not good enough to teach children uh, was, a, you know, a prejudice that we saw in the northern cities. But when, when she got the job of teaching in New York City, what did she teach? English. She was trained in English. She was an English teacher. And one of the reasons why I, I took pride in writing Dr. Leonard Cavello, an Italian who has earned his uh, PhD from, uh, from uh, I believe, Columbia. Um, I know he was from an Ivy League school. Um, he uh, was principal of the Benjamin Franklin High School, which were, was right on the edge of Harlem, before Harlem changed to black. You know, they had poor Jews and Irish and so on. And uh, he hired Leo Lane as his first black teacher. Uh, Lenny Cavello wrote one of the best books on how to educate also the poor in the inner city. It's called The Heart is the Teacher. I wrote him, he, he sent me a four type page letter and I put some of his ideas in the book. When he retired in Sicily, Italy, he passed away in his late 90s. Um, he had someone type the letter, I guess as he dictated. But uh, uh, he, uh, he hired Leolene to teach English uh, at, at the Benjamin Franklin High School. She was an, a very effective teacher. She was a very good teacher. And uh, it helped to tear down the prejudice, you know, that existed in the, in the public uh, school s structure in New York City. And uh, we got the same thing in Philadelphia with, uh, you know, people who came along later. You also uh, write about her being active in the teachers' union in New York, American Federation. She was teachers. one. Of, she was the first uh, woman, African American woman, uh, vice president of the American Federation of Teachers, and um, uh, she headed up its civil rights division. Um, she was highly respected, and in fact, um, um, I can't remember the year that the AFT had me uh, go to Atlanta and to Washington to speak about her, about Leo Lane and her life. Um, they wanted to have her, uh, with difficulty, her, her, her remains exhumed in Cuernavaca and brought back to America, um, but you know, that, that didn't happen. Um, but Leo Lane was uh, very effective in, uh, in the American Federation of Teachers and, and uh, confronting uh, racial issues. And um, uh, they respect her a great deal, the AFT. Does she have any nieces or nephews still around? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. It's, there's an interesting story. Yeah, I, I, uh, I met a few. Um, Do they know she, anything about her? Uh, they found out indirectly. Um, 
This is the American story, and Ms. Collins, Teresa Collins, who could pass for white but married a very dark-skinned man, uh, made me promise not to put this in the book, but it's a part of American life. She said that, you know, part of the family, uh, Leo Lane and Teresa Collins' brother, Harry Lane, passed for white when he's the one who bought them. And um, he, um, his daughters, uh, and he looked white, and they married white men. Well, at Leo Lane's memorial service, now Leo Lane uh, appreciated uh, the Second Baptist Church of Dawestown. Uh, she would attend there some. That's where her memorial service was, and I was one of the speakers. But um, Harry Lane uh, made his children feel that, you know, don't, don't associate. He would only see Leo Lane at the old Snellings, what's the store downtown? Snellingburg. Oh, Snellingburg's. Snellingburg's. Every Christmas day without his wife and children. He only saw her once a year because he didn't want them to know that he was black. Um, and there were reasons for it. I mean, he had privileges that, you know, he would never have if he was, you know, detected as a black person. Well, at the funeral, at the memorial service, one of uh, his daughters came with her daughter. You know, she found out, and she had met Lil Lane. And when, after the service, when she heard all the speakers <laughs> talk about this woman's civil rights activity and uh, dealing with the racial issue in America, uh, her daughter, 16-year-old daughter, was in tears. I mean, she always thought she was Italian. She looked Italian, and so she didn't know she had any black in her background. And uh, her mother said, uh, I brought her here because this lie has to end in our family. You know, I want her to know her heritage. Well, a few years ago, my wife and I spoke at the Popular Cultural Association in New Orleans on Lail Lane. And during the question and answer period, a man stood up. He said, um, I am Lail Lane's grand nephew. I'm a Negro, and we looked, and I said, there's no Negro, this man's white. <laughs> and he was married to a Greek woman, and we went to lunch with him afterwards, and he said, I, I held this thing in me long enough. And he, I'm a musician, he's now a lawyer. He said, I'm a musician, and he said, Leo Lane told him, he, she, he said he had a meeting with her, and uh, they encouraged him to be, do more with his life, and and uh, go to law school. And he, he went on to Temple and became a law school. But it's interesting that uh, it's part of the American story. How many people who call themselves white have black in their background f through the slavery period? You know? And that's a part of, the, you know, part of her uh, life experience. Well, we're going to have to end it because we're out of time. We've been speaking with Leonard Bethel. He is the author of this book, La Citadel, Lael Lane and Social Activism in 20th Century America. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.